Hey folks, thanks for checking out Missio Church in Niner, Iowa. You are listening to audio recorded at our Sunday morning service. If you'd like any more information on the gospel or would like to learn more about Missio Church, you can find us on Facebook at facebook.com backslash Missio Mount Air. For our time in the Word this morning, we're going to look in Romans chapter 4. Uh, we're going to read verses 1 through 13 to kind of kick ourselves off uh, and, and looking a little bit at this narrative of Abraham uh, further as it's revealed in the New Testament. So this is, let's read the text. This is Romans chapter 4, verses 1 through 13. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him, who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised, so that righteousness would be counted to them as well, and to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring, that he would be the heir of the world, did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. The grass withers, the flower fades, the word of our God stands forever. You know, the questions we ask and, and think a lot upon, you know, why do bad things happen? Why is the world so broken? What do we do? How do we answer these things? They're all interesting questions. And, but, but when it comes to a lived life, not a pondered life, the questions become not necessarily the why do these things happen. Those are fun, philosophical, good conversations to have. I, I love talking about these things. But at the end of the day, uh, not a pondered life. The questions become about a lived life. How do we live <laughs> in the midst of this broken world, maybe without all the answers of the why, but now how do we live in this broken world? How do we have hope 
in a world that is this broken, in a world that is this messed up, how do we then have hope in this world? And I think the Genesis narrative, you know, we've been planning Romans 4 for several weeks now uh, to, to do a, a sermon to jump into this text about Abraham and how this kind of fits in the whole Genesis narrative. We, we're keeping that pattern because I think there is much in the book of Genesis that, that tells us the answer to these abstract questions, not fully, but sufficiently. There's still a lot of room to ponder these questions. It does answer the why and the brokenness of the world, but it also puts a lot of seeds into the ground on now how to answer those other questions. How then do we live in light of this brokenness and this lived reality? How do we have hope in this world? In Genesis, puts many seeds into the ground that then come to fruition and are explained and revealed to us in the New Testament, specifically in places like Romans chapter 4, about how this now plays out. What now? What is the larger picture that God is painting before His eyes? And how can I find myself in cooperation and in sync with Him and what He will ultimately fulfill? Uh, a familiar story maybe many of you have heard, and I don't know this guy, but I'll assume this is an accurate story. The point is the same. But this, this noted English architect, Sir Christopher Wren, was supervising the construction of a magnificent cathedral in London. And a journalist thought it would be interesting to interview some of the workers. So he chose three and asked them this question, what are you doing? Three men all at work on this cathedral, and he goes to three individual men, what are you doing? What, what is going on in your life? What are you doing? And the first one replies, I'm cutting stone for 10 shillings a day. Like, I've got a task, I'm doing a job, I'm cutting stones for 10 shillings a day. The next answered, well, I'm putting in 10 hours a day on this job. They, one's, I'm doing this labor for this pay. This other says, I'm working this amount of time on this job. But the third says, I'm helping Sir Christopher Wren construct one of London's greatest cathedrals. And he had a different view about how to then live. In, they all three were doing the same occupation. But, all, but, but the last one had a different view as far as it comes to lived reality. Having this bigger view about what's going on, what it's all about, what is the purpose of everything gave him a different motivator to do the same task that everyone else was doing because he understood, if you'll uh, accept the term, the meta-narrative of what he was doing. And it gave him place and purpose in this larger story of what was going on. One of the greatest ways to strengthen yourself is to know what God is doing and where your place is in all of it. One of the greatest ways to strengthen yourself is to understand what is God doing and where do I find myself in the midst of what is God doing? It's one of the greatest ways to strengthen yourself. And so this begins by understanding this meta-narrative that Genesis lays out for us, right? And the meta-narrative, you've never heard that term before. When Jim and I say something like meta-narrative, there's four movements essentially. Meta is over top narrative story, this, this overtop story over all of life. And it has four movements, creation, fall, redemption, and then lots of fun is had with the last one. Sometimes it's recreation. I like to say consummation or is this creation, fall, redemption, 
and consummation or wrapping all things up or recreation, the end of all things, is this movement over top of all that God is doing. And we see in Genesis the really these first two movements in very stark reality. And then, like I said, seeds of the, of the rest of what God is doing. But we see clearly right from Genesis 1, God is the creator. He has made all things. He's the ruler of all and the centerpiece of it all. He is the one that sits above it all. He is transcendent over it all. He is the one who rules it by the word of his power. It is very spoken into existence. He is distinct and independent from all that he has created. And so we then exist as creatures under his sovereign authority. And at the heart of creation, we see God makes a people, Adam and Eve, right, for himself. They are to walk in fellowship with himself. Day six of creation, the vice regions, people made in his image to have relationship with this God for his glory, for their own good. They are to magnify him in relationship with this God. But only two chapters then into the book of Genesis, right? We find the fall of man. Sin enters the world and the world is broken. Sin enters the world through the disobedience of Adam and Eve and sin and the curse follow as a result. And yet, notice, so we have creation, we have fall. We hit a very important turning point in the narrative. God does not abandon his purposes of gathering a people for himself just because the fall happened. And praise God he doesn't. <laughs> the, what he could have done is it could have been creation, fall, and judgment and obliteration. <laughs> and he would have been just to have done that. But he doesn't. It's creation, fall, redemption. God still is at work to redeem and make a people for himself. God's purposes remain, his purpose remains. He will have a people for himself to worship him and glorify him, right? Our mission statement, we exist chiefly to glorify God. He will have a people for himself to worship him and glorify him as the one deserving of all of his praise. How will he do this after such an incredible severing of relationship? How will he restore his rebellious image bearers to himself? And that's the desire that we see from David here in Romans chapter 4, right? He quotes Paul writing Romans to the church at Rome. He quotes Psalm 32. And David sings of this blessedness. And what does David regard as blessedness? Blessedness is not escaping suffering. Blessedness is not having all the answers. Blessedness is not having all the worldly joys that one could have. Happiness, blessedness to David is blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. This desire of David is that the one whose sins are forgiven and will have their unrighteous deeds not counted against them. That is the blessed person because if your unrighteous deeds are not counted against you, the purpose of God of redeeming a people for himself, that means you are one of his people. To be found righteous, to be found forgiven of your sins, to have your deeds wiped away, you are a truly blessed person because the purpose for which God made the world, his own glory, 
by redeeming a people for himself, you have found yourself to be one of the ones that God is working this purpose of creating a people for himself and for his glory. That is a truly blessed person. And so Romans 4, we're asking the question, how does one find themselves in this blessed condition? This is the problem that we deep down are trying to solve. How does someone find themselves in this condition? Well, Romans 4 tells us clearly, not by your own merit. Not by your own goodness. Not by your own keeping of the law. Our hope is not in doing right, but in being made right. Okay? Our hope is not in doing right, it is in being made right. And Romans 4 is really this illustration, it's, a, it's corroborating ever, evidence of the argument Paul is making and he starts, that he starts making in Romans chapter 3. But really you can look at the meta-narrative, if you have your Bible out, you can look at the meta-narrative and Romans kind of argues along this way. At the start of chapter 1, after the introduction and he, he greets them, he speaks about the, the fallenness of the world as, and he, he paints it as this rebellion against the Creator. Verse 20, speaking of God, for his in, of chapter 1, for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power, divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. There is a creator. God made it all and is owed all of the worship and glory of his people. And then quickly Paul moves into the reality of mankind rebelled. And then the worship that they should give God, they now give to created things and themselves. So we have creation, we have the fall, and really chapter 3 of Romans is just this deep dive further into the, the pervasiveness of sin. So we flip over into Romans chapter 3, after we have the creation, the fall of man, it dives down deep. Before we get into chapter 4, an important corner is turned. Romans chapter 3, verse 21, because there's this reality, Romans 3, 23, right, that all have sinned, which is what we're going to read, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. This purpose of God of achieving His own glory by redeeming a people for Himself. I'm sorry, folks, none of us make the cut. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And by rights, we have no standing before God to be a part of his eternally happy people. Our doing is not enough. We have all fallen short. And so that's what this chapter 3 is all about. There's just the, the absolute radical sinfulness and depravity of mankind. But verse 21, after this plunge into the sinfulness of man, but now, Paul says... The righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and prophets bear witness to it. Speaking about, this is not about doing right. If the good news of the gospel is do right so that God will look favorably upon you, you're in trouble. And if you don't know that, you don't know yourself very well. If the answer is do right, and by being do right meaning never do wrong, that ship has sailed for all of us out of the womb. <laughs> that ship is gone for each one of us. There is no keeping of the law. The righteousness of God, however, in verse 22, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. There is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God 
and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He passed over sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Christ. And this is what we see at the cross. We see the perfect justice of God punishing sin in a substitute for His people. The wrath that we deserve as rebellious sinners the wrath that his people deserve as rebellious sinners is laid upon Christ. The judgment that we deserve so that God can still be just is put upon a sacrifice named Jesus. And yet at the same time that God remains just, he also is the justifier of the one who will believe in Christ. And this is why Abraham then is this corroborating evidence. It's this as this uh, extra evidence of this reality because even when you go all the way back to how God made a people for himself, Abraham is not justified by keeping the law, by being a good person. He's justified by faith in God's promises to him. That's the point that Paul is making over and over again. His, he's, he believed God and it's counted to him as righteousness. Verse 13, this very important promise that we read, the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world <laughs> did not come through the law, through his goodness, through his obedience, but through the righteousness of faith. The promised blessing to Abraham and his descendants is not passed down by flesh or biology. It's not passed down through personal righteousness, following the footsteps of Abraham, just be like Abraham and be good and get counted righteous. No, that wasn't how Abraham was counted righteous. It is through faith. In the same way that Abraham believed God, it is having been made righteous by faith, by trusting in God, by believing in Christ and his work, life, death, and resurrection. There is no goodness of our own that we can lift up to God. There is no perfect law fulfilling that we can lift up on our own. Instead, we cling to Christ and his righteousness and sacrifice for us. Um, some of us are on Facebook, and so I hate to say Facebook is a terrible place to get your theology because sometimes I see some good things on Facebook. But as a general rule, 90% of the times, the stuff you read on Facebook is a terrible place to get your theology. As Jim has referenced earlier, just the way, it, just the, the flippancy of so much of it. But not everything that calls itself Christian on Facebook is Christian. Not everything that calls itself Christian on Twitter, or excuse me, X, whatever it is now. Not everything that calls itself Christian on your social media. Not every Instagram post that says it's Christian is necessarily Christian. Not every book that you can look at at christianbook.com is, is necessarily a faithful Christian book. I read this uh, on uh, a few days ago. Uh, a, a person, I, I don't need to say who, it just, I read this and this is their interpretation of Christianity. And it comes from a, a progressive Christianity. And just hear their idea of, of what it means to be a Christian. And they says this, he says, At the heart of Christianity is a powerful ethic. It is what the first followers of Jesus called the way. 
a way of living based on love and compassion, reconciliation and forgiveness, love and compassion, inclusion and acceptance, peace and nonviolence, generosity and justice. This ethic, what we do, is what makes Christianity good. And I want to just say firmly, no. It is not the ethic of Jesus that is at the heart of Christianity. Unless you mean his love for sinners and his giving of himself for them. This idea gets it totally backwards. What makes Christianity good is not the command to follow the ethic of Christianity. Because if that was the good news of the gospel, again, I'm in trouble. You're in trouble. We need something. We need better news than just follow the ethic. It is grace that saves you in spite of your failing to follow the way. Giving yourself something bigger to be grateful for. And then in the reality of that truth, that good gospel message, that though you have totally messed everything up and deserve God's wrath and judgment upon yourself, Christ takes your sin upon himself. Everyone who would repent and look to him, forgiven and made righteous, reconciled to him and given his grace and forgiveness. And then now, yes, in response to his overflowing grace, we absolutely live in light and serve others as we have been served. Forgive others as we have been forgiven. But never mix that up. Never mix that up. It is calling us then to empower and empowering us to walk out our days serving as we have been served. So then, what is the point of all? I mean, so this is just this is just the gospel good news. I hope you hear this when you show up at Missio. You hear this over and over and over again, that it is what Christ has done for you that reconciles you to God. But what is the point to all of this? Why place trust in Christ? Why believe like Abraham and Christ in the gospel message? Okay, so I get God on my side. Now what? Now what? Because that longing for purpose and meaning that we all intrinsically feel the pressure to figure out, it's this echo of reality. There is a purpose. There is a meaning. This is going somewhere and we want to be united to that big reality. So it leads us to then the conclusion of this argument, which you find in Romans 8. I would just commend to you if you have a, it wouldn't take you forever. Even if you're a slow reader, I think you probably could read Romans 4, 5, 6, 7, and 8 in you know, less than an hour for sure. And read this argument Paul makes. Just start at 1. Read through 8. This is Paul's argument. This is his meta-narrative of creation, fall, the work of redemption through Christ, and then the consummation of all things in chapter 8. Romans 9, 10, and 11 are kind of a justification for why God has done the way that done the work the way that he's done it it's fun to talk about and then 12 and on is now the practical applications the way that Paul has laid the book of Romans out is amazing but he's wrapping up his argument really from chapter 4 chapter 8 is not a separate part of the book it's 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 this continuous argument this is where this is all going Romans chapter 8 reading just after where Dennis finished off for us this morning Romans chapter 8, verse 18, Paul writing about this glorious good news, this becoming heirs with Christ. Actually, just look up. <laughs> you look up to verse 15. This spirit of slavery, and this now we call Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, meaning heirs of God, right? And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him 
This is what is done through faith. This is the, this is the descendancy of, of, of Abraham and his belief in God. This is, who we, this is what we inherit, God himself. And Paul goes on, he says, For I consider, verse 18, that the present sufferings, that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together with the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we await eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. This is what Jim was referencing there in culture creation, this promised future. This is not something he just made up on the spot. This is what Paul is pointing us towards, this future hope. The brokenness of this world, the groan that we feel is actually an indicator of we're looking for something better because the, the final purpose of all things is not brokenness. It is all things being brought together in Christ as Ephesians tells us. It is this promised glorious future are you yearning for the brokenness of this world to be mended? Good. One day it will be. And those who are God's through faith in Christ will rejoice with all of creation on that day. Are you anchored there? Are you anchored in a story bigger than your own? Are you anchored in a story outside of yourself? Because this is a broken world, your story will always contain varying amounts of brokenness. There is no escape of it. I can look around the room knowing most of you and some of your stories and we could talk about, we could spend a lot of time talking about the various brokennesses. Brokennesses, is that a word? Various <laughs> brokenness that we have all, that we all walk through. Your story will always contain various amounts of brokenness, but even Jesus' life in this broken world contained sorrow and sadness, yet it was always driving towards the final redemption of all things. There is a story that will not be broken, but actually undoes all of the brokenness that we, by our sinfulness, have brought into this world. Having lives that are anchored in that truth, reconciled to our God by faith in Christ alone, we're not given the explanations for why we suffer as we do, but we are promised that one day all will be made new. We will have a true longing of our existence achieved, full fellowship with our Father through Jesus Christ. And this is just beautifully laid out. Paul says it under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, obviously far better than I could. So as we point forward to that, this longing of suffering and looking forward, this creation, all of us groaning for this future when all things will be made right, he wraps it all up, Romans chapter 8, verses 31 through 39. He says this, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us through faith in Christ alone, if God is for us, who can be against us? 
Sorry, I need to, I have to say that a lot, a lot. If God be for me, who can be against me? And, and I, don't, I don't discern that by looking around me in my circumstances. I don't discern that by some internal uh, feeling or emotion. I don't discern that by a, a checking account, friendships, anything like that. I, if God be for me through Christ, giving himself in my place, suffering my wrath that I might be set free. If God be for me, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who could condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. What shall separate us from the love of God in Christ? Shall tribulation or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword. As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, not skipping them, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Let's pray. God, we need <laughs> at all times, uh, when times are high, when times are low, we need this anchor grounded deep in our souls. Christ is our hope in life and in death, that there is a sufficient anchor. God, I thank you that, that there is a purpose bigger than what I look out and diagnose, that you are doing something giant and magnificent and glorious that one day will be fully revealed. And as Romans 5 tells us, that on that great day, no one who has put their trust in you will stand and be put to shame or be disappointed, but will rejoice with a full rejoicing that the God, it will be proved, the God who was for us, nothing could stand against us. Life nor death, angels or demons, principalities, powers, nothing in all of creation could be against us because of your love for us in Jesus Christ. God, if there's any heart in this place this morning, who isn't sure if they are yours, if they've turned from their sin and have trusted in Christ and have died to self to be brought to life, to live for you. Father, would you do that work right now? Birthing faith, birthing trust. And Father, for those who have done that and yet the sufferings of this life continue to chip away at us. God, would you strengthen us in the hope that there is in Christ and in him alone. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.